out of the pulpit and focus on some of the other things that he does. And that gives Jeff and me a chance to uh, preach from time to time, and we're grateful for that. Before we get into our time in the Word, I know that I need to address the first and foremost question on your mind. Is he wearing an extra skinny velvet tie? Yes, I am wearing an extra skinny velvet tie. It was a Christmas gift from my sister who lives in uh, New York City, and uh, she likes to help keep me on the forward edge of what's fashionable in her city. And I can see from the look of many of your faces that you need to repent of your jealousy that your sister is not as wonderful as mine. So with that, let me pray for you. And, uh, and we'll get into the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we have to open your Word, and uh, thank you that uh, we are here to, to sing your praises, to hear from you, and celebrate what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, thank you for the time that I've had in preparation. Thank you for all the people that are here, and pray that you would uh, bless this Word to uh, the lives of your people this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, Jeff is our worship leader. He's been here since 2011. He's coming up on three years in a couple of weeks. Before we had Jeff, we had Scott Klein. He was our worship leader from 2008 through 2011. And uh, he was, uh, it remains, uh, mid-20s. He's from Paoli, went to IU. He graduated from IU. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And he's an aspiring musician. And he was doing... Uh, musician work and uh, here at Prairie View as a worship leader and that was becoming more and more difficult to be working late nights on Saturday and try to be here at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning so he left Prairie View to uh, pursue that full time. He didn't want to be huge and big and famous, the next John Mayer, he just wanted to be uh, successful enough to travel to a different city each night playing before his uh, legions of adoring fans who all would have, of course, Scott Klein t-shirts as we do. I see that look of jealousy on your faces again, because uh, of course there is, of course there is. All right, so Aaron and I became friends with him when he was here, and uh, it's been a privilege to see his success grow over the last uh, few years around the, around the region. Now, he and I were catching up at Starbucks uh, last month, and uh, catching up on all the things that going on in his life, talking about the, the work that he's been doing, the shows that he's had, uh, the traveling, the late nights, the freedom and flexibility in his schedule, his roommates, his landlord, young lady that's got his attention, how jealous we are of Andrew Luck's beard, and, and uh, how much we miss Mitchell Pafford now that he's going off to school. All the normal stuff that pertains to being an aspiring, single, young, hardworking musician in Broad Ripple. Now, that all happened. Now imagine that our conversation had taken a turn, and this didn't happen, but imagine if he had said that once he was done having coffee with me, that he needed to go to the mall and get a Christmas gift for his wife. And that would have caught me by surprise, because, Scott, I know I've known you for five years, I've met your friends, I've been to your house, I've gotten to know your family some, I've even met some of the girlfriends you brought to church. You're not married. When did you get married? What are you talking about? Oh, I've been married for years, he says. I, uh, it's no wonder you've never met her, because I hardly ever see her myself. We got married back in college, and I think she got a job down in Louisville. Uh, I hardly ever talk to her, but I know that it's important for me to get something for her around Christmas, and maybe around her birthday, too. I think it's in the spring, I hope. And uh, I never talk to her, but I know that she's always thrilled to hear from me whenever I check in. And I know that she loves me, because... We got married. I said the words the minister told me to say, and uh, she did too. And I got the gift, the, the marriage certificate under the front seat of my car. I know that we're good because we're married. And I know that when I'm ready to start a family, she'll be there for me. And I bet those kids are going to be cute because I think she had green eyes. Now, 
let me say quite clearly, that was imaginary. I'm 95% sure that Scott Klein is not married, and I'm 100% sure that he's an honorable, upstanding, godly guy who's also not a moron, because even if he did have some sort of Las Vegas-style ceremony 10 years ago and hasn't seen a girl since, nobody would consider that a marriage, least of all a judge who would have given that girl an annulment a long time ago. If you don't know your wife, if you repeatedly and consistently do her wrong, if you don't care about what's good for her and what's important to her, then nobody will take you seriously when you claim to be a good husband. They'll tell you that you're either uh, delusional or willfully blind or a liar. Now, the point of all this is that John wrote a letter, a letter to churches that were facing false teaching. Teachers claimed to know Christ, but they denied basic facts about him. They claimed to um, be good with God, but their lives were filled with ongoing, chronic, unrepentant sin. And they claimed to love God, but they did not have a loving relationship with his people. And John says, like the husband who doesn't know his wife, does her wrong and doesn't care, there's something wrong here. You're either lying with what you say or you are lying with what you do. John did not directly address the false teachers, but he wrote to the church, to believers who were either in danger of being led astray or were needing reassurance that maybe the false teachers were right and they were wrong and they had something to be nervous about. So John writes this letter. This is how you know that you know Christ. This is how you be sure that you belong. This is how you can recognize a false teacher. The true followers of Christ do not walk in darkness. And that's the big idea that we're going to be unfolding this morning. The true followers of Christ do not walk in darkness. Please open in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one under the seat in front of you. There are also maybe some around the edges of the room if they haven't been snagged already. If you do not own a Bible, there are going to be several out in the lobby on the welcome desk, and we would love for one of those to be yours when you leave here today. But either way, please have the text open in front of you, because what I say and think does not matter. And what Ben says and think uh, matters even less, but what matters is what God says in his word. So please have your Bible open and uh, see that what I say matches what's in the book. Last week, we did chapter 1, and right from the start, John sets out simple truths that we can contrast against false teaching, because the easiest way to identify a lie is to know the truth. And we can read through the book what John wrote and figure out what the problem was in his day, and Ben told us about it last week. At its root, the false teachers were wrong. They had a wrong understanding about the relationship between the physical and the spiritual. Obviously, we know those things are different and they must be distinguished, but it appears the false teachers went several steps too far and said that the uh, physical and the spiritual were separated, that the physical me is independent of the spiritual me. And that might sound pretty philosophical. And, uh, well, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. And in this context, there were three that were facing this church with this false teaching in the areas of doctrine and morals, and love, how they were treating other people. And those are the three issues that John is going to bring up over and over in this book through this whole series. And if we keep in our mind clearly the reasons that he's writing, then our passage this morning should unfold fairly straightforwardly. If I say words like straightforwardly, it's going to be a rough morning. It'll be easy this morning if we remember why it is that we're doing this. Okay, first, the false teacher's separation of the physical and the spiritual gave them a wrong understanding of Christ, which we talked about last week. John repeatedly insists that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, truly God and truly man. Back then, 
they were prone to denying his humanity. Today, it's more fashionable to deny his divinity. But either way, John's point is that if you want to actually know Jesus, you need to pay attention to what he says about himself. If you deny basic truths about him, then you are demonstrating that you do not really know him at all. Second, the false teachers had a false understanding of morality. If the body doesn't have anything to do with the soul, and if the soul is saved and the body can go do whatever it wants. And you can see the appeal of that line of thinking. And it is with us to this day, although in slightly more subtle forms than they were facing it then. John acknowledges that the body and the soul are distinct, but insists they go together. If we are in Christ, if we love him, if we claim to know him, then that will affect how we live. You can claim to be a vegan, but if you're eating a 20-ounce steak topped with bacon and cheese, then you are either lying about your principles or you have been lied to about the nature of your breakfast. For us, faith and obedience go together. We are saved through Christ, specifically through our faith in his work, and the obedience follows. The obedience doesn't make us right with God, but it shows that we have been made right with God. They go together. So there's bad doctrine, there's bad morals, and then the third area where the false teachers were wrong was the understanding of the church. If our souls are saved, then it doesn't matter how we treat each other. We don't have to sacrificially love each other. We don't even have to put up with each other because there's always some other church that you can go to. And we certainly don't have to give generously of our time and money because, you know, that's just not my problem. I'm not going to invest in a small group, not going to keep teaching Kid City, not going to give generously of my money because, you know, just give me Jesus and tell me about his love and grace. And John says, no, no. If you love Christ, then you love his people. If you are alive spiritually, then you'll be very sensitive to his command that to love your neighbor. Loving Christ and loving his people go together. Now, for the false teachers, sin was just not a big deal. Their understanding of humanity was that our problem is not that we are separated from God because we're dead in sin and separated by our iniquity. Their idea was that we are separated from God by a lack of knowledge, by our ignorance. And so for them, the key was higher spiritual truth. That's the way to knowing God, not repentance and confession. And people in the church recognized that's different. I don't have higher spiritual truth. I just have Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Am I missing the boat here? And so John wanted to reassure them that they really were on the right track and to warn them not to be deceived by the false and dangerous teaching. To help them with this reassurance and warning, he gives them three tests, those same three areas, a test of doctrine, a test of moral obedience, and a test of love. And with that in mind, we can go to 1 John Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He does not want them to be misled by the idea that sin is not a big deal, so he tells them, don't sin. But he's just finished saying in chapter 1 that everybody sins. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Advocate was the word for the the family lawyer, the counselor who would come alongside in a time of family crisis and give consolation and support and comfort and strength and speak on the family's behalf. John says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the father. He could have said an advocate with the judge, but that's not how we relate to God, not as sinners accountable to a judge, but as children of the Heavenly Father. And so we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
he's identified as the righteous, but he's advocating for sinners. Why would somebody who is righteous speak on the behalf of those who are not righteous? Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. How many of your Bibles say propitiation? Atoning sacrifice and sacrifice of atonement are also good, suitable alternatives. If your Bible does not say propitiation or sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice, then take your Bible home and read it and underline it and highlight stuff and read it until it falls apart and then go get a different Bible that says propitiation or one of those other things. It's sort of odd that John, who uses such simple vocabulary, breaks out the big church word, not just once, but twice. We're going to see it again in chapter 4, but you will never see it in the newspaper or on TV or hear it around the dinner table unless you're having dinner with Aaron, because it is a big church word, and we only use it in certain contexts, but we keep it around because it is the perfect word for describing a uniquely biblical concept. A propitiation is an offering that turns away wrath. One party has a grievance against another, and the guilty party makes an offering to satisfy the debt, remove the offense, and alleviate the anger. Our neighborhood is in the process of transitioning from being run by the developer who had the lots and sold the lots and built the houses to being run by the homeowners, the HOA, all 13 of us. And so some of the uh, families, we've, been paying, we've all been paying dues to the developer, some of them for five or six years. And now that the neighborhood is practically finished, we're somewhat curious, where has that money gone? Because obviously it has not been spent in our neighborhood. We can see that. So, so where is it? You've taken our money and what have you done with it? So this week we heard from the developer, there's no money left. And not only that, we owe them several thousand dollars and it's due in three weeks. Now, when that news hit the neighborhood, there was wrath, as you might expect. Not only is the money gone, but to add insult to injury, we need to fork up more money. And that just did not go down very well. Now, it's not going to happen, but if the developer came to us and said, okay, you're angry, we get that you're angry, you're right to be angry. And um, instead of just forget, forget that we asked you for any more money, and when the spring comes, when the snow is gone, we will pave your street nice and smooth the way that we are supposed to. Now, if that happened, that would be a propitiation, an offering that turns away wrath, a sacrifice of atonement. The neighborhood's finances would be made whole. Our sense of justice would be satisfied. Our relationship with the developer going forward would be reconciled, and our anger would be dissolved. In the relationship between God and humanity, we are the offenders, and God is the offended party. We have rebelled against him, chosen our own way, and affronted his holiness. And what's worse, we cannot make an offering to turn away his wrath. We cannot satisfy the debt. We cannot make propitiation because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. There's no offering that we can make. So how is it that we can be reconciled to God and have an advocate before him and come to him as a loving father rather than as an angry judge? Because Jesus, the righteous, paid for our sins. He settled the debt. His blood is the propitiation for our sins. Because he first loved us, God's wrath was exhausted on him, and we can come to God as beloved children. He is the propitiation for our sins, verse 2, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does this mean that every person across all of time and space is going to be saved, that Jesus died on the cross for every sin of every individual that was ever committed? 
No, of course not. John is writing this letter because there are false teachers in the church endangering the church, and there's a problem there. So what does it mean for Christ to be the propitiation of the whole world? It means that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It means that when we talk about the love of God, we mean that in this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The offer of the gospel is open to anyone who would come. Anyone from Israel, anyone from pagan Greece, even anyone from pagan Noblesville. But to come to Christ means to come in the name of Christ. You can't claim Christ died for your sins, but then deny that he came in the flesh. That's failing the test of doctrine. You can't claim to be good with God and uh, say that Christ accepted the punishment for your sins and then say that sin doesn't matter and sin like there's no tomorrow. That's failing the test of Uh, moral obedience. And you can't say that you love Christ and maintain a hostile relationship with his people. That's failing the test of love. Now remember, John is writing to those who might be in danger of failing the test and to reassure those who are passing the test. It's warning and reassurance to different groups of people. So often, the people who need to hear the warning let it go by and rest easy, whereas the people who need the reassurance get all disturbed that maybe they are in danger. This is usually where a pastor would say, those, the ones who are most disturbed by the warning are the ones who need it the least. But once you've heard that one too many times and you think, oh, golly, I wasn't worried, but now I am worried because maybe I'm supposed to be worried because apparently being afraid is the sign that you don't have to be afraid. So am I nervous? Nobody is looking at me like they're understanding what I'm saying. It's just me that's, that's gone through this. Okay, let's, let's move forward and see how John warns those who are in danger and reassures those who are safe. We all need to be asking ourselves, how am I doing? Not how is Josh doing, how's Ben doing, how's my wife doing, how's... How am I doing? Where do I fit into John's rather stark categories? Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That means being brought to completion, brought to fulfillment, made whole. By this... We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John wants his people to know where they stand. Some people these days might view knowing, being confident, being sure as somehow prideful or arrogant. But John wants his people, he wants us to know and have that confidence. How can you know that you know Christ? How can you be sure that you belong to him? And John gives the answer. Is there fruit in your life? Are you obeying more faithfully? Are you walking in him more consistently? Not perfectly, but increasingly. It's not about effortless perfection. It's about diligent faithfulness. Do you pass the test of doctrine, growing in the knowledge of God? Do you pass the test of moral obedience with a growing freedom from sin and desire for righteousness? Do you pass the test of love with a growing affection for his people and a desire to use your resources so that more people can know more of God? 
Or do you find evidence of spiritual life lacking? Is your degree of knowledge of God and his word no better than it was several years ago? Is your relationship with him no deeper than it's ever been? You might be failing the test of doctrine. Are you struggling with the same sins that you were 5, 10, 15 years ago? That might be good, because waging war on entrenched sin in the soul can be a sign of life. It is a sign of life, and it can take time. But if you've thrown in the towel, given up, and made peace with your sin, then that's bad. That's failing the test of obedience. And if there are more broken relationships in your life than there used to be, and more coldness in your heart, then you might be failing the test of love. It's very important to stop and remember that doctrine and morals and love do not save us. It is not what makes us right with God. But they always grow where there is life. And if there is no growth, there is no life. True followers of Christ do not walk in darkness, whether that's darkness of doctrinal ignorance or darkness of moral unrighteousness or the darkness of lapsed love. John points to the false teachers and says, bad doctrine, bad morals, bad treatment of others, Watch out for them. They are walking in darkness. The truth is not in them. And he looks at his church and he says, yes, you sin, but you are growing in knowledge of God. You are growing in obedience. You are growing in your love for each other. It looks like you are in Christ. So keep on abiding in him as he abides in you. If you, if you sometimes wonder if there is true spiritual life in your soul or whether you've been engaged in a multi-year exercise of willpower and self-deception, John wants you to know where you stand. He wants you to know where to look for evidence of spiritual life. And he's not going to say, look at events in your past. Don't look at your baptism. Don't look at the card you signed, the aisle that you walked, the, the prayer that you prayed, the pine cone that you launched into the fire at camp. Those are all good things. Those are all potentially meaningful moments in your walk with Christ. But that's not where John tells us to look to see if there's ongoing life. Erin has a library card in her wallet. Does that mean that she's a great lover of reading and books? No, it expired during the Bush administration. She is a lover of books and reading. She just doesn't get them through the library anymore. Don't look at the events in your past. Look at what is going on in your life. John says, look for the fruit that is in your life, for growth, for evidence that God is transforming you into the likeness of Christ. And if you're not seeing it, ask people around you who know you. They may be able to see it better than you and tell you, yeah, look at the ways in which you've grown over the last few years or or not, because the devil would love for you to be confused, and those who need the warning, he wants them to feel safe, and those who need reassurance, he wants them to feel lost, so, so you can know, and look at your life, and if you find evidence of spiritual life, if you see the fruit of the Spirit growing in you, don't take credit for that, and don't think that's why you're saved, it's evidence that God has saved you. Now, this might have sounded pretty new and different to John's readers, so they would ask, is this something that you've been telling us all along, or is this something you just cooked up now because there's trouble in the church? John, is this consistent with what you wrote in your gospel account of the life of Christ? Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So what is the word that they have heard that they've had from the beginning? John doesn't say. He doesn't bother to spell it out. But if you follow that phrase from the beginning through the book of 1 John, you'll find it in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And you can piece together what it is he's talking about. That God is light, and because he first loved us, he sent his Son so that we could have life and shine his light to others. Even the Old Testament had these same three tests 
of doctrine and morals and love. What did Jesus say when he summed up all the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But if that was already there in the Old Testament, then what has changed now that Jesus has come? What's different now? Verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What's different now is that Jesus kept the commandments, and because his spirit is in us, we can too. A new command I give you, that you love one another. That is what Jesus told his disciples. And the light of God was shining in the Old Testament, but it was shining through the law. And it revealed that God was holy and that we were sinners. And Paul talked about a veil being uh, laid over that light. But now that Christ has come and removed the veil and given us his spirit, we can keep the commandments. We can shine his light outward to others and uh, send it along to other people as we live lives that give glory to him and speak about what he has done. On the other hand, if we are not in Christ, then we cannot keep the law and we are still in darkness. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He's failing the test of love. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The more you're walking in the light, the less likely you'll be to trip yourself up or to trip up those that are around you. But if you're still walking in darkness, you're going to be tripping all over yourself in your blindness, and you'll be a hazard to everyone in your life, the way that the false teachers were a hazard to John's church. Verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Think back to the marriage illustration. Being a good husband is important. Know your wife. Don't do her wrong. Spend time uh, with what's important to her. But doing what a good husband does is not what makes you legally wed. And it's not what made you fall in love with your wife in the first place. It's because you fell in love with her and then married her that you want to invest effort in being a good husband because you want that relationship to grow and deepen because you love her. Love her. Being a good Christian is about involves knowing God and obeying him and uh, loving his people, but doing what a good Christian does is not what saves you. Good spiritual Christian habits are not what caused you to see the glory of Christ and repent of your sin. It's because you saw the person and work of Christ and responded in faith that we want to grow in him and grow in the knowledge of him, not to earn your status or achieve salvation, but to grow in it and bear fruit. Now, it's possible to get to this point in the passage, this point in the sermon, and say, okay, so I'm in Christ. I know that I'm in Christ. I, I have that confidence. And so now I need to know him more, study his word, pray more, sin less, practice righteousness, love my brother in the church, love my neighbor at home. You know, this is a lot to work on. This is a little bit overwhelming. I'm a brand new Christian, and there's so much to do. Or, you know, I've been at this for 25 years, and there's still so much more to do. Why bother? It sounds so exhausting, and I'm going to end up in heaven just the same. Why bother? If we leave this on the wrong note, then this sermon is going to be a burden on you. And that's why John breaks off and he drops in a poem. Maybe this became a hymn or something, because this section of poetry is always set apart from the prose that is above and below it, all around it. Let's take a look and draw some encouragement from it, because that is what it is here for. Verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, 
because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he liked it so much and thought it was so good that he says it all again, just slightly different. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. All right, John is plainly addressing different people in different stages of spiritual maturity. Different seasons of growth in the Christian life are characterized by different things. Brand new Christians are like babies. They're wonderfully alive, and yet they're so desperately ignorant. And they're... I know, I know, right? She doesn't seem to mind as much as you do. But they do know this. Baby Christians, they know their sins are forgiven. They're children of God. They haven't had time to grow in anything else, but they know that much. If you are looking ahead to a long lifetime of walking in Christ, it is essential that you know that your sins are forgiven. Not because you're so lovely and forgivable, but for his name's sake. You are secure in him. Your forgiveness is accomplished. And it is the foundation of that is essential to being encouraged for the long walk of discipleship. But babies don't stay babies forever. Uh, Growth does happen. And as people grow in Christ, they grow in those three areas of doctrine and morals and love. And they become spiritual adolescents, the young men that John called them. And they learn how to exert their spiritual strength and overcome the accusations and temptations and deceptions of the evil one. The enemy was defeated at the cross, but as we grow in Christ, we learn how to exert our spiritual strength and overcome his attempts to interfere in our lives as we grow in Christ. But people aren't supposed to stay adolescents forever. Amen. As you mature, you begin to realize that the ultimate purpose is knowing God. Mature Christians, grown up in the faith, they know the Father. They know him who is from the beginning. All the striving, all the effort, all the studying, all the working hard on relationships, all the waging war against sin, it's all for the purpose of knowing God and the sweetness of fellowship with him. And those who have known that and done that know that all that effort is worth it. And that can start the cycle all over again, rejoicing over the forgiveness of sins, celebrating that we have spiritual strength over the enemy, and knowing God in an even richer way. This poem in verses 12 through 14 is John's recognition that spiritual growth takes place over time. He gives us three tests, and to fail the tests is to show that you don't have the truth and you're not in Christ. But he says, you have an advocate before the Father because growth and godliness takes place. Time. It is a lifelong process. It can happen astonishingly swiftly or it can happen agonizingly slowly and that is up to you. But when the enemy comes to you and you're hungry, you're hurting, you're alone, you're lonely, you're tired and he's seeking to deceive you and bring you to despair, then remember, my sins are forgiven, the enemy has been overcome and I know the Father. This week I found the words of a hymn written a couple hundred years ago by Fanny Crosby quite helpful. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great is our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, 
Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come to you, that we have your word, and that we can know you through your word. I thank you that our sins are forgiven. I thank you that you are growing us in you so that we can have strength to overcome the enemy and his accusations and his deceptions and his temptations. And I thank you that because you first loved us, we can love you and we can love each other and we can have life in you. I pray that this week we will remember that our sins are forgiven and that you will give us an increasing desire to be free of them. I pray that you will give us discernment when the enemy comes to us and whispers his lies and brings his accusations and temptations. I pray that you'll be helping us grow in love for your word and in love for your people. And I pray especially that you'll be filling us with a love for you so that we will not be distracted or entrapped by the love of this world. And I thank you and I pray that we may know that we have eternal life and come to know you better and better. It's the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you.